Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Tishiko King is a proud Torres Strait Islander woman and seed mob organising coordinator and she's speaking on a panel this Saturday about First Nations international climate justice as part of the opening night or opening day of the Environmental Film Festival in Australia. Tish, thanks for joining me this morning. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So watching the film, um, The Condor and the Eagle, so this is the opening film for the Environmental Film Festival and it's a film that is um, about the struggles and experiences of um, communities in South America and in the United States as well as Canada in relation to environmental justice, First Nations communities in in relation to um, environmental justice. What was your takeaway watching this documentary? Um, thank you. Well, look, um, you know, it's it's actually a really uh, tough question because as a proud Torres Strait Islander, you really feel those um, the pain uh, um, that those First Nations people, um, you know, are illustrating and sort of, you know, what they uh, have to overcome in everyday life uh, to, you know, get through and, you know, what it means to their communities. So um, it was quite an interesting, it, it was quite an interesting um, adaptation of what actually really happened. And, you know, what was just... Um, obviously, it's something that we can sort of relate here to, um, you know, those environmental issues in Australia. Absolutely. And were you surprised at, you know, how similar the experiences and struggles were? Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you know, First Nations are, you know, considered as minorities and in low socio areas, which is where these fossil fuel industries and companies sort of really, um, you know, uh, want to set and take their, um, you know, set up their station and use their resources and take what's left. And it's just like you would have, um, you know, there's this amazing sort of like uh, metaphor in the uh, film where it just says it's like pouring out the last drop mm. of a bottle and you're like, oh, my gosh, why, why? <laughs> 100%. It's interesting as well because, um, you know, this kind of global solidarity is something that exists across very many different movements when it comes to First Nations people and other communities of colour around the world. What's the importance, you know, for there to be collaborations and solidarity between Indigenous peoples in terms of climate justice? You know, I think the the content of the Eagle film really um, illustrated uh, like exact, that exact question. Mm. I, it, the, for itself, you know, um, ancient prophecies say that when the eagle of the north and the condor of the south fly together, indigenous peoples will unite the human family. And I think that's a really uh, take-home message there that, you know, by standing together in solidarity, we can really overcome these issues. And, I mean, the important thing is that you know, climate change is the defining issue of our time, and we are at that defining moment. And now in these unpre- uh, unprecedented times, we are facing, you know, uh, this health 
um, Health Global, uh, Global Health Pandemic, and you know we are at a critical crossroads of reaching those environmental thresholds. And with the natural disasters being exacerbated by those fossil fuel industries and other local environmental issues, we really are seeing our mob and other First Nations and Indigenous people um, and communities being most at risk. Mm. It's amazing because this global health pandemic is considered just a global health pandemic, but in many ways it is very clearly an environmental crisis as well, isn't it? That's exactly right. Like, the reality is, is that First Nations and Indigenous communities have been fighting these introduced, you know, diseases since colonisation. Right. So, for us, it's like nothing new, but it just adds to that environmental issue. And, I mean, I've been thinking about um, you know, a lot um, during this time and thinking how, like, climate justice isn't the end goal, but it's a path to winning. Right. Like, how climate justice isn't just the right thing to do, but the most like the most strategic option at our disposal. We cannot solve the climate crisis without land justice and First Nations justice. And like how white supremacy plays out in this organisation and movement, how we need to be accountable to each other to force ourselves and other movements to be better. Mm. It's interesting because I see like how holistic the campaigns and the work of Seed Mob. Um, are and sometimes this environmental advocacy, advocacy sector can be quite narrow in its ambitions where it's very much about um, you know the environment specifically and forgetting that A, people are, live in this environment and B, for different communities around the world, the environment and, and the people are essentially interchangeable. It is the same thing. You can't have one without, without the other. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think that's something that people forget. Like, you know, most of Australia's population is on the East Coast and don't realise communities and our resources because it's not actually fed in mainstream media. Mm. Um, And so it is something, uh, you know, that it is, you know, without, you know, social, like land justice, there's no social justice. Mm. And so, like you said, it is interchangeable. What um, what is Seed, wor- Seed Mob working on at the moment? What are the campaigns you're working on and how can people get involved and learn more about you? Yeah, thank you. It's, like, such an important question. Um, so for those who are listening, um, Seed Mob are Australia's first Indigenous youth climate network and we've been building a, a movement of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to protect their land, rivers and oceans from the causes and impacts of climate change. And since 2014, we have brought together and built that capacity of young uh, of young mob um, to take action on our campaign. Uh, the biggest campaign um, that we actually prioritise is our Don't Frack the NT, which uh, exploits or well, illustrates the exploitation of the of fracking um, and the detrimental impact it has on communities. And, you know, a fun fact here, for some odd reason, fracking seems to be illegal everywhere else in Australia except for the Northern Territory, which has, you know, a good population of our Aboriginal communities. So, I mean, that in itself says something there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing that, you know, in 2020, fracking is something that is is still happening like there is so much research even just and there's so many conversations that have been had for years for a really long time about the impacts and how detrimental fracking is and it just seems like you know in the NT it's okay for that to continue. 
That's exactly right. It's, you know, it's actually just such a shame because, you know, in the, since we're sort of uh, sort of seeing how the stats on how our like carbon emissions has dropped at the moment, it's like you know we could be really at a, we could be transitioning right now to renewable energies, and like where companies could be going to green energy. I mean, it is something that's stated in the UN Sustainable Development Goals that has been illustrated, and I think more companies and you know stakeholders really need to shift um, their priorities. Yeah. And so you're speaking at this panel on Saturday morning, our time, um, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Um, so the film is Saturday morning and then at 12.30, I think it's 11am the film, 12.30 is the panel and you'll be speaking alongside some of the people who were in the film. So that's pretty special. What can folks expect from the panel on Saturday? Yeah, you are absolutely right. Like, it's actually such an honour to be, you know, standing up um, and speaking next to, uh, you know, First Nations people that are, as the same thing, you know, um, at the forefront of uh, the injustices in their communities. Um, so, you know, what you can see is actually some really strong Indigenous women voices, and I think that's something to be heard. Um, it'll illustrate, you know, we're going to talk about, um, you know, how, you know, these impacts on our community communities on our people and you know you know long-term uh, outcomes from that the reality is is that if you drink water and if you breathe air this is so relevant to mm. you absolutely and that you know when I was watching the film I was so struck by and it's you know it's never a big shock you know it's but it's still surprising right it's never something that totally <laughs> confuses me because you see what happens and it's, you know, it's part of these patterns, but it's also very, very difficult to experience. But there are a lot of people who experience um, intense health issues when it comes to um, what happens in their areas with the companies that are um, mining, whatever's happening in the area. They're talking about the pipelines in the United States in particular. Um, and the fact that a lot of people in those areas are First Nations people and immigrants, you know, um, and they are experiencing detrimental health issues, issues with breathing, issues with cancers. Um, and that just as that first step <laughs> is one that I think people don't consider enough. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like if it doesn't impact them right away, then it doesn't impact them, you know, at all, and they right. don't actually see those. I mean, that's exactly right. Like, you talked about the pipelines through the U.S., and it's a myriad of pipelines. And the most important thing is that, I mean, if any of if there's a leak that does permeate through our soil, and that's exactly right. Like, you know, communities that live along um, banks or rivers and that go fishing and hunting through those rivers, it just, it just seeps through and it's just like those indirect effects. And importantly, if they say that, oh, don't fish here or don't hunt here, it's a loss of, the, uh, it's a loss of connection um, to the country, to our land, when people are telling us not to hunt because that's our ways and they're our traditions and for us to go through that again is you know it's that's where those sort of like mental health issues come in as well so you're right like it brings in all these other issues that um you know that come around like and it just it, it questions you know basic human rights really and that's why the work of seed mob is so important because it's holistic right it's not just a focus on one um, issue. It looks at environmental and climate justice through a million different lenses um, with people 
at the forefront and people in the centre. That's exactly right. Like we have a different approach to uh, other organisations because we consider and uh, like bring in our values of like culture, and so it's the way that we sort of communicate as well to each other. I think is really important, and it's building our mob to really, you know, uh, take control and really fight for what is right. And it's it, it is something that we do here at Seed, which is really great. Tish, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for taking the time and doing all of this work. No, that's okay. Look, um, it's really great, and thank you for having us. You know, it's so great that we can share our Seed Indigenous Climate Network with everyone. Um, but more importantly, if um, everyone wants to uh, catch a film, it's only going to be viewed uh, this weekend um, for free. It's a free screening, so I think everyone should head to Environmental Film Festival Australia's uh, website and um, jump online and register. It'll be a great time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tish. No worries. Thank you for having me. You have a good day. Tish King is a proud Torres Strait Islander woman and seed mob organising coordinator. She is speaking on a panel this Saturday about First Nations international climate justice as part of the opening night of the Environmental Film Festival Australia. If you want to hear more from Tish and other young First Nations climate leaders from around the world, jump online, register to watch The Condor and The Eagle, which will be uh, happening online this Saturday, the 27th of June at 11am Australian Eastern Standard Time. And the um, virtual panel will start at 12.30 and you can find all the info on the Environmental Film Festival Australia website. And I am very excited to welcome the fantastic Alison Whitaker, who is a Gomorrah poet and researcher at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research. Alison has written a brilliant piece in the conversation titled, Despite 432 Indigenous Deaths in Custody Since 1991, No One Has Ever Been Convicted. Racist Silence and Complicity Are to Blame. Alison, thanks for joining me this morning. Yama, thank you so much for having me. Um, so since you wrote this piece three weeks ago, which is really no time at all, there have been a couple of changes when it comes to the numbers of um, Indigenous deaths in custody. Can you give us a little bit of an update? Yeah, of course. So the 432 deaths that feature in this headline, but that also featured uh, in a lot of the placards that you might have seen at Black Lives Matter protests about a fortnight ago, that that is a figure that comes from um, the Guardian's Deaths Inside database, which has been led by Carla Wildquist and uh, Camilla Roy reporter Lorena Allen. Um, it has been updated because there's all this, um, I guess you call like a statistical silence around deaths in custody that actually makes it quite hard mm -hmm. to figure out what the number is on the ground. So the main sources of data are principally coroner's courts or they're from the Australian Institute of Criminology, both of which face really, really lengthy delays in both categorising deaths and actually recording them. So um, there's always going to be a little bit of slippage in that number, um, which might be why we've seen the development um, of our understanding of 137 deaths now with the updated numbers of deaths inside. Yeah. And there's also been a lot of discussion in the last few weeks about, you know, the lack of mainstream coverage and public outrage in Australia when it comes to <laughs> black deaths in custody versus, you know, the deaths of black people in the US at the hands of police. Um, mm. This is not a new conversation. I think maybe mainstream media started to um, have it a little bit more in the last month or so. It's a conversation that's been had mm. for a long time. What do you think the root of this silence is? Where do you think it comes from? 
It's a really interesting question. So um, I've kind of done my, my master's thesis on this topic um, and on how even though there's so much systematic review of deaths in custody, so um, in on the continent, every First Nations death in custody, every non-Indigenous death in custody goes before a coroner's court. And, of course, from there there's lots of legal structures that make talking about it difficult. But at the root of it, as you've said, the very fundamental problem is this really racist complicity that sees First Nations deaths in custody as natural or as deserved. Um, and that's also something that's been seen in comparable places uh, like Canada and Turtle Island, North America, um, where a scholar named Shireen Razak um, wrote a book called Dying from Improvement, which is about coroner's processes with deaths in custody um, of First Nations people in Canada. Uh, and she said that um, First Nations people in these processes were kind of treated as they were already dead or they were somehow deserving of death or there was something natural or expected and therefore nothing suspicious to look into. So that's one of the forms that the silence takes. It's not that people aren't necessarily talking about this, although that's certainly true that people in the mainstream aren't necessarily talking about it. But there's a lot of conversations about First Nations deaths in custody mm -hmm. that aren't led by us that actually end up pathologizing our deaths and making them seem as if there's something akin to having um, a heart attack or um, having any other kind of um, disease pathology that results in a death. Well, we know it's quite, quite distinct. Right. It is. You're absolutely right. It is like a matter of fact, the way that these kind of, um, you know, the way that this has been covered in the past, but also within the academic space, like even if you're studying Indigenous studies um, and mm -hmm. you're kind of trying to take it in, often Indigenous studies taught by non-Indigenous person, but you're taking it in and you're reading the readings and you're trying to learn what's going on and it just doesn't seem as completely outrageous and unjust as, as you know, what it should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true and um, it's something to do, I think, with the, the retelling of stories um, and the reframing of First Nations deaths in custody through kind of legal means, but also through reporting and the way that history books kind of like to portray the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. It's all about um, taking the stories that people bring before the coroner's court. So often it's families who are bringing stories about their loved ones and the violence that was done to them and the cruelty that was done to them that accumulated in their death or that resulted more directly in their death. Um, and then there's all this counter-storying as well from the court and from state parties like uh, corrections or police who are interested in telling a very different story. So, yeah, it, in a way it's less about um, a more obvious silence in that everybody's talking about it, but some people want to talk around it mm. in a way that actually stops us looking at the real nub of the problem, uh, which is colonialism and prisons themselves. Do you think that um, there's also a sense, like if we're doing the comparative analysis in Australia versus the United States, do you think it's a sense also of kind of what Scott Morrison said that, you know, this is an important issue um, and not having to kind of take on any personal responsibility as a country and as individuals who benefit from, like what you said, colonisation, who benefit from the over-incarceration um, of First Nations people? Mm, that's exactly right. And in some ways, it's because it's um, a, a time-honoured settler Australian tradition to point to the US, say things are terrible there, um, and to ignore the systems that we have here. But while they're not identical, 
perform a similar kind of violence against Black and Indigenous people. Um, it's also because if we think about, um, if settler people think about um, the the systems that are in place here, it also invites an analysis of complicity, which is um, for some really difficult to wrangle with, but it's so, 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 so necessary that people do. Mm. So what happens within the context of like a coronal inquest? You know, I've, I've been to a few, I've seen them, and there is a real... Um, it's a really jarring experience as someone who's just sitting in the um, in the room, let alone for the family. Is what is the process um, in in that context? Mm. So coroner's courts are really different from um, other courts that people might have seen in popular culture or might have encountered themselves. So they're not criminal courts. Mm. They're not really strictly speaking, civil courts, they're this special jurisdiction that I think has a real relationship to, to storytelling because they have to do two things, more or less, which is find the cause of death and also the manner of death. And so the manner of death is where, um, I guess, uh, a few families and human rights organisations try to, to intervene to explain how someone came to be in the circumstances that they were when they died at the hands of the state. Um, but what happens is every death in custody um, experienced by anybody um, who's in contact with police or prisons at the time of their death uh, is automatically referred to coroner and will either get its own inquest or a coroner will kind of look over the file in chambers. And from there, interested parties um, like the families, like sometimes community organisations, um, and definitely more often organisations that represent the state, like hospitals, uh, police, corrections, and the individual officers, doctors and nurses that are there, they'll also be represented. So one vision I like to explain to people when they see just, in a way, how stacked the system is against loved ones getting the justice that they seek is that the the bar bar table where all the kind of counsel or the lawyers are sitting, usually just two of them, maybe less, sometimes maybe three, will be representing the family um, of the person who passed away. And the rest of the table, sometimes even um, two or three tables, is just taken up by state representatives. And they are almost always outnumbered, outgunned, um, outresourced, because families often have to rely on either legal aid or the resources of the state um, in terms of getting strategic litigation funding from the community sector, um, whereas the state obviously has kind of these boundless pockets. Um, And more concerningly, Um, police and corrections have quite um, an influence over preparing the investigation themselves, even though it might be another department within the police or corrections, it's still the institution investigating itself. And that's often the evidence that the coroner has to go on unless the family make a really concerted intervention. So, yeah, there's kind of a sense of the process that goes on from there. Coroners um, go through this process and inquest is often... Um, depending on the complexity or the number of parties, kind of goes on for about three to four weeks, sometimes six. And at the end, the coroner will do the cause and manner of death, but they sometimes also issue recommendations that would prevent a future death like the one that's before them. Um, And in rare circumstances, although families push for it frequently and strategically and expertly, Um, Coroners can refer to uh, corrections uh, 
in relation to the death uh, correction. Sorry, can refer to prosecutors in relation to the death. Um, people that they think um, should be uh, considered for prosecution, if I can clumsily word it like that. Um, and that's often a pathway to um, the, the more explicit justice that sometimes families seek. Yeah, and it's it's amazing when you um kind of see it played out. We can you can read you know all about the coroner's court and its purpose, but when you see it playing out, and you and like you said, it's you know the family and then everyone else, and and the purpose of the court isn't necessarily it's not like a this person versus this person or this party versus this party. It's about mm. you know technically it's it's meant to be about finding out what's happened essentially. Um, but it does actually feel like that when you're when you're in there and you and there is a sense that you know this it is the state versus the family and that is something that you can't unsee when once you do see it Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So coroners um, are kind of like what we call inquisitorial courts, whereas um, some courts that people might be familiar with is like criminal courts, mm-hmm. like adversarial in nature, someone versus someone else. Um, and yeah, part of um, what makes it so difficult to deal with these courts is that they disguise their adversarial nature in that kind of really holistic, everyone's kind of meant to be working towards a mutual purpose. Um, but absolutely, I think you're right in observing in practice that it is really, really adversarial. And that there's a lot at stake. It's the story of someone's life and the story of their death are really, really, really important determinations. And otherwise, families wouldn't fight in the way that they do. And there's a desire also that I think you've identified maybe that families want to push sometimes towards a more adversarial blame-directing court, which is why something like referring to the DPP is so valuable in that that can be more explicit about articulating um, not only that something ephemeral happened to them, but that someone actually killed in some circumstances their loved one. Alison, it's a tough question that I'm about to ask you and I feel like if you had, you know, the answer and the process, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation at the moment. But <laughs> what what should be done? Like I see no answer and this is a conversation that's being had in the US quite a lot about defunding the police and, and I guess dis- dismantling these systems that seem to just be working <clears throat> against communities. Um, what what can be done? What What should be done? Um, in terms of what could be done about getting justice after these deaths have happened or about preventing I mean, deaths? I mean, preventing deaths, of course, but also getting mm-hmm. justice post, you know, what has happened. I, you know, preventing is in relation to the prison system, of course, um, and, and the court system and prison system are interlinked. But just even broadly about um, these systems and... Um, you know about mm. like what I'm what I'm thinking about and what I've kind of referenced is this term abolition, um, and what and what that yeah. means within these contexts. Absolutely. So to answer the first bit, um, in terms of what should be done, MOB has been pushing for a little while uh, for an independent First Nations-led investigatory body that has the power to conduct its own investigations into deaths in custody as they happen. Um, And so I think that is something that people should, uh, policymakers and um, those who have control over these systems, think very, very seriously about. But as you noted, Without abolition, that's really only going to be something, a really, really small gesture. Um, Abolition is a really um, 
serious topic that's difficult to talk about because it has a, a vision that demands a lot of us in the present but has um, something that's very, very future-focused, which is the end of the world that relies on police and prisons in order to exert some form of control over the population and usually over marginalised people. But abolition is, um, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, not just about getting rid of the buildings that we call prisons, mm. also thinking about other ways to think about harm and the damage that we do to each other, um, which also include building infrastructure to prevent um, people falling into positions where they are either empowered to do harm or they do harm because of circumstances that are outside of their control, but also building ability procedures to treat people as totally disposable um, and that think about the better design of our communities. So for me, that's that's really, really exciting. And when I think about abolition, I see as it being as part of this big decolonial project where, as Naukagori and Whitgori wrote for The Guardian a little while ago, the, the very settler colony of Australia is built on the idea of the prison. Mm. And so to be able to abolish prisons, we also have to fundamentally rethink what is this place that we call Australia? What's this state that's kind of come upon here? Absolutely. And it's and it's a lot about imagination. Like in the reading that I have done in the last five, seven years about abolition, a lot of it is about imagination. It is about really removing yourself and taking out what you consider the default and what you consider the standard and reimagining what the future mm. could look like and that being a really fundamental part of that, you know, expecting what we have experienced and the life that we have lived, you know, in 2020 and in the last however many hundreds of years to actually not necessarily be it, you know, it's not it's not the default and really consider mm. what and really imagine what um, what something else would look like and how that justice would look for everyone. Yes, absolutely. And so it it demands a lot of us, but I think it also frees us in more obvious ways than just freeing us from um, police and prisons. The ultimate vision of abolition is building stronger communities and um, being able to uh, live in a way that's accountable too, but also um, that we can be resourced by one another and that we can really seriously take on harm, but also that we can rethink fundamentally what the nature of harm is and um, also be able to see how prisons and police perpetuate it, especially on First Nations people. Mm. Alison, thank you so much for your insights. This has been incredibly insightful and I think your piece was absolutely brilliant. I just want to say um, that, you know, for those out there, I'm sure you've probably seen or heard of Alison's work outside of this like law and justice sector. I'm going to say that your poetry is a gift. It is absolutely nourishing and devastating all at the same time. And I'm thankful to you um, for not only that, the brilliant work that you do in this area of law and justice, but also your creative work. So um, I just wanted to say that to you live on air. Thank you. (laughs) You can't see because it's radio, but I'm blushing. Um, And thank you. I'm I'm really, really grateful. And um, it's so exciting to see people taking on the project of abolition within the law and justice sector, as you said. But also I see the big push coming from the arts and literature in particular, really big parts of imagining what's possible. Yes, absolutely. Alison, Mm. thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a really nice rest of your day um, and I'll catch you next time. It's such a pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Alison Whitaker is a uh, Gomorrah poet and researcher at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research. Alison has written a brilliant piece in the conversation titled Despite 432 Indigenous Deaths in Custody Since 1991, No One Has Ever Been Convicted. Racist Silence and Complicity Are to Blame. You could also jump online and check out Alison's work. Um, she's got this amazing uh, book of poems called Black Work and a whole manner of other things. Akenyo is a TV and theatre actor and musician from Sydney who has just dropped a cheeky little EP uh, called Solo and it is pretty special. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Reese, Thanks so much. Um, so the songs from this EP I read were supposed to be released in album form. Why did you go the EP route? Well, yeah, I've had these songs sitting around for about two years and I think because often like I'm, you know, I might be doing a play or I've just got lots of other projects going on, often my plans change quite quite frequently and so I started out writing this um, body of work and then it was going to extend to an album but then by the time... I started writing new songs. It just kind of didn't fit in with what is now the solo EP. And so the songs have been sitting there for a while um, and I haven't really known, like, how to... I think I was trying to make them fit in with the, the new style that I'm... the new style that I'm going down, that path. And um, But I, I just didn't want to leave them behind. So, you know, I'm kind of sitting around in isolation and, and thinking about for myself, like, mm, I think I just need some, like, kind of chill, chill vibes. Um, so I thought it was a really good time to release them and just for myself honour them. And I'm so glad I did, like, otherwise they would have just gotten lost. And I think that's a thing that happens with musicians often, right? You're holding on to some music for a long time um, and then when it's time to release, you're at like maybe a different place or you're checking out different styles or some something else has happened that is more pressing for you to, to think about. And, and so actually just releasing stuff is such mm. a special thing to do, right? Because you release it, it's out into the world, it's not really in your hands anymore. Um, and that sounds like a, it feels like a release. Yeah, totally. And it is actually, you know, it's it's probably the best thing that I like about making music is the giving it over, you know, like creating it and it's very personal to me and I can kind of be self-indulgent in that process. But then the, the act of just giving it over to people and people having their own experience, I absolutely love it. And you're right because... But it's so often that by the time, I mean, maybe not usually two years, but um, just trying to close the gap a bit. But, you know, like usually you're right. It's, you just kind of have a different connection to it. So, yeah, I just always love giving it over for people to listen to and for them to make it their own. And how's it been for you in, in isolation? I know things in New South Wales are getting a little bit, you know, better. Melbourne's kind yeah. of regressed a little bit. We're, yeah. we're in like second lockdown. Um, yeah. But how did it go for you? Because you not only um, make music, you also work in theatre and you act on telly and, and these are all industries that were very, very much impacted by, you know, not being able to leave your house. Yeah, I mean, as everybody went through, it was just a total shutdown. And, um, I mean, I have been a bit lucky cause, um, because of my job on Play School and in general with ABC Kids, they have been amazing because they have um, needed to c- continue to create content for children and parents because parents, I think, are going, you know, having the new experience of having to homeschool. So people are like, give us more. So it's 
it's been great. I've still done the voiceover work and done some shooting with them. They managed to just jig things around. So I did have a bit of work, but yeah, I mean, creatively on the music front, I, I'm back into writing now because I'm able to go into the studio and work with producers and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I, I think I responded by just going, okay, I'm not going to be able to really be creative. I, I wasn't really feeling it. Like I wasn't feeling that I was able to write. I didn't want to write about being in isolation or, you know, and there were also moments where I was like really low and missing a lot of people and feeling, yeah, feeling lonely. And the thing that I've learned about writing is that whatever you write, you then have to perform it. <laughs> And um, I, I didn't want to create kind of songs based around how I was feeling, which was really up and down, and then have to later on, you know, perform this sad music. <laughs> so I was just like, don't write, just, you know, rest and, you know, think about um, just, yeah, look after yourself, I think, like mentally. Um, and in terms of, you know, theatre, that's still... I mean, theatre and live performance that's still so up in the air. I'm pretty worried about the theatre industry because um, more than live, because I think live music will come back and, you know, people kind of know how to take in music and that's a easy access. But theatre already before COVID, you know, it's something that um, that a lot of people see that they don't have access to it or it, is, it can be an elitist space and it's expensive and, you know, so I'm, you know, and, but, our industries rely on being together. So, you know, um, I was lucky in the sense that I wasn't already doing shows, so I didn't kind of have that grieving process of like, you know. But, of course, I lost gigs and things. But, I don't know, I've been just trying to take it day by day. And that's what was really nice about, you know, kind of going, oh, I can still engage by releasing this music right. that, you know, um, that I've just had sitting around and, um, yeah. And people want new music. I think one of the the things at this point, and, you know, I spoke with Sump on the show a couple of weeks ago and mm -hmm. she was saying, like, it's actually really hard because as a musician you just want to feel this moment the same way everyone else is feeling this moment. And for those who um, – and the expectation to make stuff is actually really, yeah. really hard and it's also a little bit unreasonable. But if you've already got stuff, you know, <laughs> people yeah. want, want new music. They want stuff that they can relate to. And whatever you release, whether it was made in ISO or not – you know, and an EP called Solo is going to work yeah. in this moment anyway. <laughs> because, yeah, totally. of course, yeah, we're already totally. feeling this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I've got another release coming up and it's really interesting because I was going to release this new release at the time that I released Solo. And um, But I, I had a really big kind of debate in my head around it because the piece coming out is quite political. And um, I opted for this, um, you know, to release something that's like quite soft and tender and thoughtful and something you could kind of have in the background because, you know, another thing as well is like, you know, this piece that I've got coming up, it's really important to me. And it's so hard to sometimes, you know, just with internet releases, like mm. that's what it is now. It's just, it just, you press post and kind of, it's a bit, unceremonious and you have to just like hope that you've done enough work in in terms of um, outreach and whatever but I, another part of it for me was like you know re recognizing what I was going through and then what everybody else was going through in terms of everybody's just really freaking out in a justifiable way about like where how am I going to pay my rent and how am I going to like what, what what is this pandemic and all of that stuff and so 
I, I've been waiting to release my next release when I think people uh, will be more able to listen and to engage in a conversation. Yeah, and I imagine something political in these times is definitely what is needed. Um, at the rally, at Black Lives Matter rally in Melbourne mm. just a couple of weeks ago, Philly um, played this song or performed this song and in it was, um, and one of the lyrics was, I'm tired of singing protest songs. And, and I was yeah, and I was listening to a lot of the music coming out of Australia by Black artists, First Nations, and and like African and other Black people in the mm. in the country. And you know, there is this big theme of um, politics, right? And there is this big theme of you know protest music. You know, I've been play, You know, this is mm. this show plays a lot of that music as much local stuff as possible. But you know, often yeah. um, those are the themes of the tracks. And I just think about how that how taxing. That that would be. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I think, you know, sometimes I worry about, um, this is just kind of things that go on in my head, <laughs> sometimes I worry about, you know, if I'm engaging enough and if I'm kind of, you know, um, being political enough or whatever, but I think, like, the more that I think in terms of, you know, having a voice and things like that and speaking out when you have a, a platform, um, but I think that, like, I'm becoming more and more comfortable with the fact that, like, my activism, the way that I express it the most is, you know, is not, I'm, I'm not a very good public speaker, that kind of stuff, like, freaks me out, but I can put absolutely everything into my art and mm. into my expression, and, you know, it's such an amazing time because you've got all different people with all different voices, you know, speaking about their experiences in different ways, you know, some people raging at rallies, some people, you know, quietly writing poems, some people singing, some people, you know, some people resting as well in order to come mm -hmm. back again. And um, I think that that's been, for me, it's been a very, um, although it's been extremely overwhelming, it's been a very validating time, you know, hearing lots of other experiences and kind of going like, you know, yeah, it is okay for me to be doing activism like and being political in my way because also there's all of these other ways um, happening at the same time. Yeah, 100%. Um, let's talk about this track, the title track of the EP, Solo. Tell me a little bit mm. about it. Um, well, actually, I was <laughs> writing a lot of songs at the time and I was like, okay, I think I'm in the mood for like a love song kind of vibe. And then I started to write, and I was like, oh, I'm so sick of, like, writing about falling in love with someone else. <laughs> like, I'm over it. And so I was like, I'm going to write a love song to myself. So we that's basically it. what it is. Oh my my God, favorite part it. of the song is, like, you know, where, um, uh, I forgot, even forgot my own lyric, but, like, turning up to the party and looking in the mirror and, like, seeing yourself. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, she's looking back at me. I'm it's fabulous. So Look at me. This this one this one definitely needs a music video, and that that scene needs Ooh, to exist. Okay. That's okay. all. I'm just putting it out into the universe post COVID that we get a music video for this one. So I'm going to play um, solo and another track from the EP, and then we'll come back and keep chatting. Cool. <laughs> Houston by Kenyo, who's on the line at the moment. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that one. I was just—I haven't listened to it in a while. I was just thinking so many things. <laughs> um, one thing that I remembered was that um, 
I was watching that film years ago, Gravity, I think it was called, with Sandra Bullock and is it George Clooney? Yes. And they they go up, they're astronauts, and they go up into space and whatever. And I just remember thinking very distinctly, oh, my goodness, imagine dating or being married to an astronaut. <laughs> like, they would leave and they would literally be out of space. Like, talk about separation anxiety. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking. But, um, yeah, I, um, again, you know, I wrote this song a while ago. And, um, yeah, I think, like, I'm really interested in, um, I think, because of being an actor and, you know, a lot of the time, if you're doing a play, you know, you have this whole, you have to map, like, this whole scope of an emotion and, and a journey um, that a character goes through. And often I'm playing, like, pretty, you know, kind of serious roles and dark roles and big emotional roles. And um, it's something that I like to try and push myself to do in um, when I'm writing music is is really, like, pull apart a feeling. And for me, I had this, um, you know, the famous phrase, Houston, I think we have a problem. I was like, that's such a good, that is such a good line. And I, I've had that in my mind, like, for many, 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 many years. I've always wanted to put it into a song. And, um, and yeah, so from that line, I just kind of extrapolated, like, really, you know, and if you transpose that into kind of like a relationship, this real thing of, like, losing communication. And I think sometimes when that can happen in relationships or relationships break down, it's even though it's simple and it's domestic, it actually is just, um, it can really feel like this vast mm -hmm. void, right? especially when you know someone so well and then, you know, you break up and they're, they're gone. And um, so in this song, I'm really exploring that. And I wanted to put that on the EP as well, because it's like exploring, you know, you've got solo we heard before about kind of being so close and loving yourself and then this is about kind of losing someone and um which is a different side of um a side, different side of communication or um yeah relating to the world you mentioned your acting and and mm. like really thinking about that in this process does it come up more like what you've learned while acting and while performing in that kind of theater um and even tv acting context has that impacted your music or vice versa before yeah, it's been a really interesting thing, like, different. I, I'm constantly kind of changing in terms of how it impacts either my music or my acting. Um, I think starting music, my acting imp impacted my live performance in the sense that I felt very comfortable and I felt like I was able to kind of just do a kind of persona and go out there and have that confidence. And then I kind of flipped when I realised I wanted, you know, my music is personal and it's me, but I wasn't used to being myself on stage, uh, used to being myself in the guise of someone else. Um, so that was kind of confronting. And then, you know, now it's been great because I'm at this point where, yeah, both disciplines and both crafts are kind of melded together. And I've been doing both for long enough to feel confident in knowing that I can be myself or I can I can flip into something more theatrical or more of a mask or a persona. Um, but definitely in terms of, I think as a musician, I can't, I can't stay away from storytelling. Um, you know, I guess all musicians are storytellers. But for me, I really like to, I guess, just what I spoke about with Houston, like really, really 
pull apart and try to kind of, you know, even with the sonics and the production in, in that song, it's so, it's so expansive and epic. And I love that I can do that with music, that, that sound can actually take you to a different landscape. Um, I think I like exploring kind of the extremes of, of things, whether it's like joy or, you know, loss or whatever. Mm. It's amazing because um, after I usually do an interview with a musician, which, you know, I generally do every week on this show, but in the last little while, because there's not really gigs and stuff to promote and artists coming to Melbourne and it's generally, it's quite hard because often we're either promoting a project um, or a gig um, and Gigs are easier to come by than, than, you know, EPs or albums. And so usually yeah. at this point of the interview, I'll ask you where folks can, you know, when the gig is, has it sold out, mm-hmm. what's happening. But I guess yeah. all I can really say is that, you know, you've got this amazing EP out and that people should go and cop it. Thank you. Um, yeah, can confirm no gigs happening. <laughs> so don't look out for anything. Um, no, I mean, you know, it, it is, it's... It's funny because I always really, a lot of the time I'm like, what am I doing? And then I spend a lot of time alone and I I do a lot of thinking and then, you know, I really trust my instincts and I feel really excited actually about where I'm going and, you know, that this, that I, you know, isolation then kind of inspired me to pull out these old tracks and and now the timing for this next political track um which should be out at the end of july which is really exciting the timing for that and people to engage in in a political like black conversation Mm -hmm. is like you know i'm like oh the timing is really amazing um and i'm i'm writing another record and so there is a lot of output on my end and I'm feeling like really creative so it's nice to know that you know people are engaging and people want to engage and people you know we need we need artists we need communication in that in that way and also artists need fans and artists need that communication from for for different for different reasons um and you know I, I think it's been hard to you know not do live shows but at the same time um, I I also I, I've obviously everybody you know does what they need to do but I'm really also aware that especially in a landscape of you know where's live music going to go and everybody's doing these like live performances from home and doing a lot of stuff for free and I really think that it's important as well to not set a precedent for that that's what's going to happen in the future because artists always, it's the same of any discipline that, like, bigger companies, like, they capitalise on the fact, um, or the industry actually still capitalises on the fact that artists will always need audiences and that we will do anything to connect. (laughs) And, um, you know, so it's something that I've spoken to a lot of artist friends just going, like, you know, do we need to do this, not another live show from home? And that's something that I've kind of, I haven't really engaged in because, you know, we need to keep honouring ourselves, even though it is a hard time. Um, sometimes that can be hard to kind of like step back and be like, you know, no, I'm just, I, I, if I'm not being paid, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, where are we going to go next and how do we make sure that we also are being honoured? 
Absolutely. And it's a conversation that I think is being had across the country and around the world about, you know, the value of artists and musicians and the IG lives and all of those um, access points, you know, the access points that people have to these artists and what that means for the industry. Because essentially, particularly for artists who, um, you know, everyone is entitled to get paid, but particularly for artists who definitely rely on that, it doesn't seem like it's a very healthy precedent and the assumption that people are going to work for free. (laughs) Is, yeah. is is definitely not is not something that we promote or we support. So I just want the live gigs to come back. Once this whole thing yeah, ends, totally. we can go to shows and pay for stuff um, yeah. and be able to experience it in that way again, hopefully. Um, and then yeah. hopefully oh, next well, time. You know, it'll be back soon. It, it will be back soon. soon. You know, and we just got to kind of like, you know, it'll be different and whatever. But as we can see already, you know, um, well, definitely kind of in Sydney, yeah. it's some, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, as we can see, it's just like things are slowly changing and that's, we just have to be patient, really. A hundred percent. And hopefully next time we have you in the studio and we yes, also have a gig to promote and all yeah. of those things. But people can look out for this um, new release that hopefully you said was coming out at the end of July um, yeah. and just to stay locked on your socials and the Elephant Tracks email lists and all of those things. Totally. Thank awesome. you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for the EP. Um, and like I said, hopefully we can do this in person at some point. <laughs> Thanks so much for all your support. I really appreciate it. Of any time. Hey, thanks so much to my guest this morning, Tish King, who's a proud Torres Strait Islander woman and Seed Mob Organising Coordinator. She's speaking on a panel this Saturday about First Nations international climate justice as part of the opening night of the Environmental Film Festival. It's Saturday morning at 11am and the virtual panel starts at 12.30. So you can jump on the Environmental Film Festival website for more info. Big, big thanks also to Alison Whitaker, who is a Gomorrah poet and researcher at the Jumbunna Institute for Indigenous Education and Research. And she's written a piece, um, a brilliant piece in the conversation titled, Despite 432 Indigenous Deaths in Custody Since 91, No One Has Ever Been Convicted, Racist Silence and Complicity Are to, play, are to Blame. And it is an absolutely fantastic piece. And we spoke through and unpacked a little bit of um, the process in regards to um, Indigenous Indigenous Deaths in Custody. And of course, Okenyo, who is a TV and theatre actor and musician from Sydney, and she's just dropped a cheeky little EP called Solo that is pretty special. Stay on her socials, actually, because um, she's got a release coming out at the end of July. Be safe and kind, and I will catch you next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.